We're in the year of 2024. Now, let's bring one of the fundamental concepts into our table, which is the word democracy. Now, if you remember correctly, back in 2023, when we initially talk about the word democracy, so much took place. For example, not only we look at this political polarization in the US and also at the same time, the whole world paid attention to two major wars. One is the war in Ukraine and also the other one is the war in Israel. Now, fast forward, we are in the year of 2024. How should we redefine the concept of democracy? Now, if you remember back in the days that when we talk about the word democracy or even understand the simple structure of democratic system, it's beyond the voters' rights, it's beyond inequality, it's actually, guess what, to preserve peace and stability, not just only within the cities, within the countries, as a matter of fact, it's the mission for the entire world. Well, that's not really the case today. Again, if you follow the news for the year 2024, we continue to follow the war in Ukraine. On one hand, people in the country still suffer from this invasion of Russia. But meanwhile, the current ruthless leader of Russia, Vladimir Putin, made no signals of stopping the war. As a matter of fact, some scholars believe that Russia today is quietly transforming some of the occupied territories of Ukraine. And how should we understand that? And do we believe that Ukraine today is willing to negotiate or is there even a possibility for the two countries to settle down for a decent negotiation? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who is Professor David Lewis. Professor Lewis teaches and researches on international relations and peace and conflict studies with additional strands of research focusing on the politics of authoritarian states. In regional terms, most of his research has explored post-Soviet politics, notably in Russia and Central Asia. Well, Professor Lewis, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, Professor, the pleasure is oh my. Now, as I mentioned before, initially when I discovered you, because of this amazing article that you recently wrote, which is entitled, The Quiet Transformation of Occupied Ukraine. Now, before we get to a further conversation, let's talk about the reality. Now, going back to the article that you mentioned that Russia remained in control of almost the 18% of the Ukrainian territory, including about 25,000 square miles of land seized since February 2012. At this moment, what do we make of the progress that both made by Ukraine and also Russia? And again, let's answer the first question. Is it time that really for the international community to come up with a feasible solution so we don't have to see any more sufferings for the nation of Ukraine? Your thoughts? Yes, I think you have to start from what Russia intended to do in February 2022, uh, which was to take over much larger parts of Ukraine and indeed to overthrow the current government in Ukraine and probably put in place a more pro-Russian administration. Mm. So in terms of Russia's strategic goals in the war, their actual uh, achievements have been rather limited and they hold on to this relatively small part of Ukraine in the southeast, these four 
provinces in the southeast that they claim to have annexed, although they don't control them fully militarily. Um, and part of that territory, of course, they control directly or indirectly, even before 2020-22. So uh, in many ways, uh, Ukraine has been quite successful on the battlefield, pushing uh, Russian forces out of the north, the northeast, um, and from part of the south in Kherson Oblast, where they had big victories in late 2022. But as we know, in the last year, there's been very little shift really on the uh, on the front line. So in territorial terms, you have a kind of um, not quite a stalemate because there's still a lot of fighting going on on the front line. But you have, you might say, a kind of equilibrium between the two Russian forces, uh, between the Russian and Ukrainian forces uh, on the land. Um, there's a slightly different war going on at sea, uh, a maritime war in which Ukraine has been more successful, despite the fact that it doesn't really have a navy. It's been able to push the Russian fleet uh, back in the Black Sea and being quite successful with uh, drones and other types of attacks on Russian ships. And then, of course, you have this other aerial war uh, in which Russia is um, uh, bombing and sending missiles into Ukrainian cities. And Ukraine is also starting to respond with these drone attacks uh, on Russia. So giving a sort of overall uh, assessment of the war is quite difficult because you've got these different domains that are going on at the same time. So although it seems like a deadlock on the front line, it's actually still a very dynamic conflict. Well, let's go to um, something much deeper. Again, going back to the article, Professor Lewis, this is what you wrote, and I quote, I want to get your uh, further explanation. Even as people, some people resist, authorities impose Russian education, cultural indoctrination, and economic and legal system to rope this land ever more tightly to Russia. Now, I think let's go back to this fundamental question. When it comes to word ideology, or when it comes to the word cultural indoctrination, what is the correlation that we bring those two concepts into our conversation when we look at the war in Ukraine? I mean, we understand it's the major conflict, it's the military, uh, again, what we say conflict and or major uh, military com competition. But when it comes to um, ideology, when it comes to cultural indoctrination, what are the important elements we need to understand as we're looking in the year of 2024? So there's, a, there's obviously a big geopolitical element to this conflict about the West, about Russia, about European security. But there's also this really important, as you say, ideological and cultural element, which is really about identity. It's about mm. identity politics. Uh, what does it mean to be Russian? What does it mean to be Ukrainian? Is there a separate Ukrainian people, a separate Ukrainian nation that has its own Ukrainian state? Uh, many Russians, including Vladimir Putin, think that Russians and Ukrainians are, as he puts it, one people, so one uh, one nation. Um, Ukrainians, of course, disagree and say we are a separate uh, nation and we have a separate state and that has sovereignty. Uh, and between those two clashes of, sort of political projects and ideologies, you have uh, the outcome on the ground, which is Russia's uh, intensive Russification policy in the occupied territories, imposing Russian language on Ukrainian schools, uh, often destroying sort of Ukrainian cultural heritage, and um, imposing all sort of Russian cultural and ideological aspects, you know, changing museums, changing art galleries, all the kind of what you might call soft power aspects. Uh, Russia is changing uh, culture, but through force, through military means, of course, through uh, political coercion and control. So that's important to remember when we, we, we're we not just looking at the military aspect here, we're looking at this really important 
cultural and ideological clash that you can see really being implemented on the ground in these occupied territories. Well, but going back to the question, Professor Lewis, so what does that mean to be a Russian citizen today? I mean, again, I believe that if we read Vladimir Putin carefully, it's all about the word loyalty. So in other words, again, if you're a Russian citizen, you know that according to his ideology or according to his, I would say, uh, propaganda, that fighting against Ukraine, it's basically to protect this whole motherland. So in other words, we need to be unified altogether. But meanwhile, again, going back to the question, how much does or how much do all the Russians today actually understand that there are so many loopholes or even this is just propagandistic um, uh, statement like coming out of the Kremlin. So in other words, you cannot just it, randomly invade another country or you cannot use false claim or false ideology to brainwash people and to believe that you are doing the right thing in order to save the people or in order to save the world. So going back to the question, what is the real identity to be Russian today as we look at the war, or especially look at the political rhetoric under Vladimir Putin? Well, of course, it's very complex, like any identity. You've got Russians who clearly do understand that the war is illegal. Uh, they understand Ukraine is a separate state. Um, but you also have quite a large part of the population that uh, seems to agree with elements of the Russian ideology and with, with Putin's view of Ukraine, um, because that is what is promoted on Russian television, in Russian propaganda, um, and that's Russian messaging and Russian media control has been very effective at mm. uh, influencing people's opinions. So you have a very, uh, in some ways, quite a polarized society in Russia between those who are pro and anti-war um, and also a sort of middle ground of people who are just, uh, if you like, trying to survive and um, uh, keep their heads down uh, and get through as best they can. But Russian leadership has been quite successful at essentially manipulating information, manipulating history in particular, a very strong emphasis on uh, so-called patriotic history. Um, uh, and in that sort of history, now taught in schools, Ukraine uh, really doesn't exist, doesn't have a place in that history as an independent state or as an independent subject. So that, that has been uh, what Russia has been very effective at, is convincing Russians that somehow, or at least some Russians, that this war is justified even though, of course, in uh, legal terms, it clearly isn't. And I think the other problem is that Russians um, simply don't know, often Russians don't know that much about Ukraine. Mm. Um, you know, it, the older generation, of course, traveled there a lot, there were a lot of connections. Uh, in the last decade in particular, fewer Russians have traveled there. Um, there's much more Russian propaganda about Ukraine. Uh, whereas Ukraine has been changing very quickly in the last 20 years into a nation and a state which has a much stronger national identity. And many Russians simply haven't uh, noticed, if you like, that change and the importance of that change um, in the last few years, and particularly among a young, younger generation of Ukrainians who now see the world in very different ways. They're much more pro-European, um, much less interested in uh, Russia and Russian culture, much more interested in European and Western sort of culture. So that big change is one that uh, Russians haven't um, really experienced at first hand. 
Professor uh, Lewis, let's talk about this occupied territories. Now, again, going back to the article that you mentioned, Russia now runs all the telecommunications and internet networks in the annexed oblast, so many Ukrainian news sites are blocked. Now, we know that today online communication is so vital and critical. Now, by manipulating this telecommunication and also the internet networks, I know most people will probably ask you the question is, is it effective? But let but allow me to ask another way. Maybe you, we can open up an even bigger conversation is, I believe by manipulating telecommunications and internet networks, that does shows some sorts of insecurity of the Russian government. So in other words, they are so worried that they're so afraid that this online world could be one of the loopholes that they, if they don't put a control right now, they can lose it because once people start to communicate, once people com communicate with the outside world, that could actually bring a lot more trouble upon the Kremlin or even upon a Putin. What do you think of that? So is that a sign of insecurity or that's a really another way for Putin strategically to manage the Ukrainian occupied territory? What do you say to that? Yes, I mean, Russia, um, Russian leadership often talks about the threat of information warfare against them, as they see it. They see Western uh, media as, and they see it wrongly, as a kind of you know, tool of tool of the West, tool of Western governments trying to undermine Russian uh, stability and security. Um, and they have discovered inside Russia itself, of course, that they can't really compete in the information uh, landscape mm. if there's a level playing field. And so they've increase, increasingly brought in very repressive laws around media. Most independent media in Russia is now being closed down. Quite strict, um, you know, very strict penalties for even reposting information about the war that disagrees with the Russian government line. And in the occupied territories, yes, it's become very difficult to um, access all the Ukrainian sites and Ukrainian news that people used to have. Of course, people can use VPNs and get on information that way. Information comes through, um, but it becomes more difficult. And on people's television sets now, uh, importantly, you get this a package of Russian television channels, mm. um, which give obviously the Russian point of view. Um, and that does over time have a little bit of impact, I think, on people's psychology on people's, uh, people's ideas. And it also emphasizes this idea that Russia wants to put out, which is that Russia is here to stay, right? Russia's interest in these territories is permanent and it doesn't intend to negotiate them away or somehow leave in the future. And that gives that sort of, again, a psychological effect, I think, of making people, uh, essentially Russia's trying to make people acquiesce in the occupation and not resist its presence on the ground. You know, when we talk about this psychological effect, of course, for adults, I mean, again, as maturity kicks in, that we understand the information that go through our mind. So, of course, that we're mature enough to distinguish the right and wrong, and we're able to tell some of the information they're trying to mislead us and some information and should be corrected. But meanwhile, going back to the article, you also mentioned, and I quote, as schools in the Russian-occupied areas Children cannot avoid the propaganda. They are forced to sing the Russian national anthem every week. Schools have completely switched over to using Russian curriculum with Ukrainian reduced to an optional second language. 
What is the ultimate goal for for a Russian government to do that? I mean, we understand for adults, it's you are saying, "Hey, listen, either my way or highway." We say that in English. But when it comes to children, you change the education curriculum, and then you force the children to sing Russian national anthem. I mean, again, the kids gonna grow up, and today we're we're not seeing the kids back in nineteen early thirties or forties. But in the year two thousand twenty four. One day they are going to wake up, and plus, with the surrounding, with the environment, they are going to wake up, and they wake up quickly. So, don't you think this is such a strategy is going to backfire exactly what the Russian government are doing? You can't make children to do something they don't want to do, and also that could simultaneously create this what we called the a natural rebellion against the rules. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's a very good question, and obviously, it's very hard to tell how that will develop,、um, you know, except from being being there on the ground. But I do think Russia's idea, at least, is of course to socialize young people、mm. as early as possible、uh, to make them essentially again normalize、uh, this Russian education.、Uh, that includes teaching Russian history, right, with that particular、uh, propagandistic element to it. Really removing all sorts of Ukrainian culture and history from the curriculum and replacing them with Russian. So what they're trying to do is create you know, good patriotic Russian citizens, as it were, out of、um, these young Ukrainian children. Also taking these children on study tours of Russia,、uh, taking them to Moscow, St. Petersburg, to show them, if you like, the uh, uh, the tourist sites of Russia and so on. So again, so it's an intensive program to try and Russify、uh, these young children. Now you might be right that some of them will rebel.、Um, even inside Russia, we know that some of this patriotic education doesn't really go down very well with teenagers. They're not very keen on going to these patriotic education classes and so forth.、Uh, and there's quite a lot of cynicism and skepticism about it. But nevertheless, I think、um, Russia will count on the idea that over time. Uh, if not everybody, at least the majority of young people will sort of go along with this idea,、um, and will end up going to Russia to university, and will effectively be part of that Russian culture,、uh, Russian political system. Now, I might be wrong. There might be more、uh, rebellious elements as well that will come forward in the future. I think it's very difficult to say, but that's certainly the Russian plan. Professor Lewis, two more questions before letting you go. Now, let's talk about the attitude from. Ukraine right now. If I'm not mistaken, I remember last year Christmas time on social media, the current Ukrainian president Zelensky shared a very, or should we say, several strong, uplifting messages through social media. Again, to sum up, he used a lot of strong emotional words. For example, unity. For example, democracy, and also the spirit of never giving up. I mean, again, we understand from his perspective, he sent a strong signal not only to the citizens of Ukraine but also the citizens of the world, particularly for the countries that were still questioned or even in this limbo position: should we or should they continue to support Ukraine financially or militarily whatsoever? But meanwhile, right now, again, going back to the article, it's called your article is called. Quiet transformation of occupied Ukraine right now. Is there anything at this moment for these occupied territories to fight back in order to resist, in order to see much greater changes? I mean, again, ultimately, I talk to people across the aisles that we they all believe 
The Russian, it's not going anywhere, and Putin is not going anywhere. So we probably know the results of the war. But right now, it's not just about sending the aids and sending the resources to Ukraine, but also continue for the occupied territories to fight back. Do we see any strategies? Do we see any hope for the uh, for the Ukrainians to fight against the power at this moment? It is very difficult. And I think part of the problem, of course, is that um, some people, certainly in Kiev and in, in, in some Western capitals, thought there would be a successful counteroffensive in 2023. And in that way, some of this territory would be uh, retaken by Ukrainian forces. Mm. But uh, obviously, we, uh, we didn't see that happen on the ground. And so you've had this in opportunity, really, for Russia to intensify its control in the occupied territories. Um, and there are only a small number of, sort of opportunities, if you like, to push back on that. Obviously, sanctions is one. Uh, a lot of people are, are sanctioned who are working in those territories. It's a kind of disincentive. Um, longer term, the cost of these uh, territories might turn out to be um, a difficulty for Russia. But at the moment, they're spending about $10 billion a year on these uh, annexed territories. But that is not really prohibitive for Russia. That's within the bounds of what they can afford, I think. Um, and then there may well be more armed resistance, of course, in the occupied territories. There have been quite regular assassination attempts, um, uh, particularly against uh, so-called collaborators or pro-Russian uh, individuals in the local Russian administrations and against some Ru Russian officers and soldiers. But for the most part, Russia's been I think, able to contain that kind of uh, armed resistance. Remember, it's very experienced in counterinsurgency from Chechnya, from Syria, from other wars. And so uh, dealing with that kind of internal resistance, uh, at least so far, has been um, uh, something that Russia has been able to do. So it does depend uh, much more on both on the military situation, but also on the prospect for any kind of political negotiations down the line. Um, but at the moment, at least, Russia's position has been that they're not willing to give up any of this territory uh, in negotiations. And so they will only do so if they're under uh, military, political and economic pressure uh, in the future. So, yes, at the moment, it looks as though we have um, a period, at least, when there won't be much change territorially um, and the focus might shift to other other areas of the war uh, and of course to the political side and the diplomatic side as well mm. professor lewis i want to ask you the last question let's talk about again towards the end part of the article this is something you wrote and i quote ukrainian policymakers had hoped that a quick and a successful military counteroffensive last year would free the territories and roll back russian forces Unfortunately, that did not come to pass. As the war grinds on, Russia has time to further consolidate its political, economic, and administrative occupation, making the eventual reintegration of these territories back into Ukraine increasingly difficult. Now, as we mentioned before, right now, I believe most of the countries, or even not most, but some countries are experiencing what we called this war fatigue, or even what we called support fatigue because we don't see the wars going anywhere but meanwhile we know russian is not giving up ukraine is facing much greater difficulty moving forward so what is the hope for the country or what is the immediate solution i mean again we know that today particularly for the u.s it's standing at the crossroads when we talk about continuing to offer supply to ukraine and also um the west is seeking much greater partnership in order to deal with 
Vladimir Putin or even Kremlin at the same time. So your final thoughts, what do you think of that? Are we seeing any hope for the war? Are we seeing any changes or immediate changes very soon? Or this is just a waiting game and surely no one would like to see the war drag on until the December of 2024. Your final thoughts. I think you know, sort of international sentiment around the war has sort of gone up and down over time. We've had optimistic periods, pessimistic periods. I think it's good to sort of balance things out a bit um, and uh, point to both you know the positives and the negatives. Um, and certainly, we've had this difficulty of getting funding to Ukraine from both European Union and from the US. Um, but now we have a European Union package in place, at least. So I think support will continue regardless of uh, these sort of stories of Ukraine fatigue. Um, I think Ukraine will uh, have to focus a lot on making sure it doesn't lose more territory, of course. So in other words, a much more defensive position. Mm -hmm. But that in itself, um, I think, can be seen as a success to maintain the pressure on Russia and also to maintain the pressure on Russia in the maritime field and in, uh, in the air as well. Uh, but I do, my own feeling is at some point there will have to be a negotiation. Um, what that will look like is very hard to say. There's no real sign that Russia wants to negotiate at the present um, and um, uh, no real sign that Ukraine is willing to make any concessions, of course. Uh, but that does mean that I suspect that come December 2024, the war still will be going on in some form at least. Um, and unfortunately, I can't see an early end uh, to it at the moment. Unless we see some major changes on either side or indeed within Russia itself. Remember, Russia is also under a lot of pressure in this war, mm. economically, politically. Uh, there's a lot of social uh, tensions um, around uh, the very high number of deaths, uh, the economic costs uh, and so forth. So uh, this is still quite an unpredictable situation, even though uh, for some people from outside, it looks as though we're in a kind of stalemate. Actually, there's a lot of dynamic factors still going on. Uh, things could change a lot during the year. But I'd be uh, quite surprised, I'm afraid, to, to see an end to the war before the end of the year. And it means that those occupied territories will still be under Russian control, probably, and Russia will be able to consolidate its control. But uh, as I say, things are very unpredictable and predicting uh, the future of this war in the past has, uh, has often um, led us to quite significant mistakes. But as I say, it is a very difficult situation, particularly for people living under the occupation. Um, and uh, we'll see, perhaps, I think, during the year, a shift towards more diplomatic, more political uh, initiatives to try and win back, if you like, the momentum for Ukraine uh, and win back sort of Ukrainian control of the sort of international agenda as well, which has slipped away a little bit in the last few months. Indeed, Professor Lewis, it is rather difficult to predict the outcome of the war. Of course, that no one would like to see that war continues because which means that more citizens will continue to suffer in the midst of the war. And of course, that will basically add additional financial and also military, we'll say even political pressure upon the international community. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Professor David Lewis. Again, Professor Lewis, it's a professor of global politics, and he teaches and researches on international relations and peace and conflict studies. With additional strands of research, focus on the politics of authoritarian states. And I strongly encourage everyone to go online, connect with Professor Lewis, and check out his amazing article, which is entitled The Quiet Transformation 
of occupied Ukraine. Well, Professor Lewis, I thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. We'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to pay attention to the global affairs. So thank you so much for doing this.